Last week, I began by asking you the question, have you ever been lost? How many of you have been lost before? All right. I didn't, uh, I didn't give this story last time, and I wasn't planning on this morning either, uh, but you know how spur-of-the-moment things go. Um, one of uh, our first dates in Florida, maybe not our, one of our first it was well before we were engaged, so it was still in that tentative time. Um, hurricane was, uh, we, we came to visit over the weekend. Uh, because we only had one vehicle and had a large family, I didn't do a lot of driving in high school uh, in, on my own. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to take Rachel to the Florida Mall. Now here, everything's really far away and you got to travel a long time. In Orlando, everything's not that far away, but it takes just as long to get there because of traffic. Uh, so, so we made it there to the mall. This was before the, the commonality of the GPS on your phones. And uh, we were there. It was around September, which is hurricane season, and took Rachel to the mall. The whole mall shut down because the hurricane was coming. And I pulled out of the mall, and I was like, left or right, what is that? And, uh, of course, I just went by my gut, which, if you know me, is not a good uh, thing when you talk about directions. Uh, And uh, the sky got darker, the weather got worse, the traffic got worse, and Rachel's kind of quiet there next to me and keeps asking, we're going the right way, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, finally, I realized that we were going the wrong way. And the way home was pretty much empty, but we were bumper to bumper. Uh, Cell phone reception was lost, couldn't do it, do anything. So anyway, uh, we we did a U-turn and ran uh, right towards the hurricane, but we made it home in time. So the whole time I was thinking, what am I going to do if we have to bunker down for shelter and I have to tell her dad we had to book a hotel room? Luckily, that didn't happen. (laughs) But none of us like to be lost. It's no fun to be without direction. And we see in the book of 1 Peter that Peter, from the very get-go, from his very greeting we saw last week, is providing direction for these scattered Christians. Verse 1 says they are exiles of the dispersion. In other words, they are scattered. In their case, in these five provinces of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithany, but they were scattered, they were dispersed, but Peter says you can take heart, though you are scattered, you are not lost. You are exactly where God wants you to be. They were exiles. Just as God sent his people in the Old Testament to Babylon, to Assyria, to the surrounding countries, they seemed like they had no hope, but they were exactly where God wanted them to be. They were not lost. Listen, whatever situation you are in right now, you are not lost if you are in Christ. God hasn't become somehow forgetful of you. 
These Christians, we're going to be reading, and, and you're going to see more and more the deeper we get into this book that they were going through extremely difficult situations because they were spiritual exiles where they lived. But they had hope. Peter seeks to ground his readers in their gospel identity by providing hope, comfort, and direction for them during their time of exile. And the same thing is true for us. You see, we're going to once again see in just verses 3 to 5 this morning that we are called to faithful perseverance and mission in light of our identity as the people of God. Listen, It's not going to be I ought to or I need to that is going to spur your faith, especially in difficulty, but even in good times. It is going to be the fact that your identity is rooted into who you are in Christ as a child of God that will spur you on to faithful perseverance through the thick and the thin that will spur you on to live missionally as witnesses for Christ, not just with your actions. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We have to proclaim the gospel to be his witnesses. It is only uh, our identity being sourced in God that will present to us the fuel to live as God's people. And we saw last week from the greeting that Peter comforts his readers and he comforts us as well that we may be scattered but we are not lost because we have a foundation. That foundation is secure. God has given us a sure calling. Why are we exiles spiritually? That this world in its present form is not our home. It is, it is the domain of Satan. It is, it is filled with sin. We are exiles because of the fact that we are God's elect. Why are we God's elect? Verse 2 says, because God is in his loving sovereignty, has entered into a a covenant, sovereign relationship with us. We were foreknown by God from eternity past. His gaze was upon us, and he elected us to himself. And not only that, but we see the work of the Holy Spirit, that upon our conversion, God, through eternity past, did a sovereign work in in calling us to himself. And then in real time, upon our conversion, we turned uh, from sin and repentance. We looked to Jesus through faith, and the Holy Spirit does a work in our heart that now sets us apart to God. And then we see the work of Jesus Christ himself in verse 2, that it was through His shed blood that our hearts are clean. 
It's through his perfect sacrifice that we have now been set apart to walk obediently to God in our Christian lives. We've been cleansed, we've been set apart, therefore we have been given a sure calling because this calling is not self-manufactured, it is from God himself. He is the author, the finisher of our faith. Man, what a confidence. What a foundation. And then we see our sure standing before God because of his work in our lives that we can have grace and peace be multiplied to us. Not just enough grace and peace to barely get by, but we abound in God's grace, in God's peace. We're going to look this morning, we're going to begin to look this morning at the second reason that we as Christians may be scattered, but we are not lost. It's because not only of our foundation, it is because of our common hope. Every single believer this morning has a common hope. Let's read together verses 3 to 5. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Once again, we see the greatness of God in providing hope for His people. And the context of hope for His people is in the midst of seeming apparent hopelessness. Are you there this morning? Apparent hopelessness. yet a hope that's sourced in God. Let's pray. Lord, as we begin this morning, Father, I pray that you would minister through your declared word. Father, the truths that we are about to look at this morning are not self-made truths. As Peter says in, in 2 Peter, it's not devised myths that we come up with out of our own mind to try to somehow encourage each other. Lord, this is your truth. This is the gospel. This is what produces hope in people. Lord, without what we are talking about this morning, there is no hope. So Lord, would you ground our, ident- our, our, our identity this morning in the gospel Would you ground our identity in your sustaining strength, what you have accomplished on our behalf, and may we then respond and live for you out of that with a purpose, with a mission. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Specifically, Peter talks about, in verses 3 to 5, the hope that we have being the hope of what is called new birth. The hope of new birth. Peter starts the, 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 the content or the body of his letter to these scattered, desperate Christians in difficult situations by giving them a hope that is founded, in other words, in their salvation. That the same God who has, who has made them his own through his foreknowledge who has in that foreknowledge called his people to be his elect, now in time has also caused them to be born again. All of this is a progression. We're going to see this hope of new birth. It is sourced in none other than God. That's why Peter says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a hope that is sourced in God. There is, because God has done wondrous things for his people, things that we could never do for ourselves, it should produce praise in our hearts. Blessed be God. Not only is he is he God Almighty, but we see the personal element of who this God is. God is not just some God who's distant, who could care less about his creation. He is the God who is the Father, specifically here, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, we see the relationship between God the Father and God the Son here. In verse 2, it was between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now he highlights this special, unique relationship between God the Father and God the Son. In fact, in chapter 1, in verse 20, we see this unique relationship again. Speaking of Jesus, he was foreknown. Before uh, the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you. God the Father, He sovereignly, in His wise divine plan, He has the Son become the Lamb who would be sacrificed for us. By His own divine initiative between God the Father and God the Son. It's because of the fact that Jesus has done a miracle work in us. If we have turned to Christ, we have been made alive. It is because of Jesus now that we can call him Father. In fact, in verse 2, Peter says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Look at chapter 1, verse 17. If you call him as father, if you call on him as father. You see, because of what Jesus has done, there is now a personal relationship that has been restored between us 
and God that we can look to him and call him Father. And the reason we can call him Father, look at verse 3. It says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. You see, we have been made anew. We've been made alive by God. How have we been made alive by God? Through, the text says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, Jesus himself experienced death for us as the perfect Passover lamb And he didn't just stay dead, but God raised him from the dead so that he could in turn be the life giver of you and me. We have been rebirthed. You remember John 3 where Nicodemus is saying, how in the world can someone someone be born again when, when they've already been born? It's the work of God. And we see the same thing here, that our identity is sourced in our Heavenly Father. It's interesting as we, as we talk about the, these terms, born again, and we see this term, resurrection, that just like in chapter 1, verse 2, talking about the saving work that, that, that God has done in our hearts, it refers back to Exodus 24. There's another uh, Old Testament passage that speaks into this idea of new birth through resurrection, If you turn in your Bibles, if you will, back to the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 37, if you're using a Bible that's provided for you, it's page 724 um, going backwards in the Old Testament. Interestingly enough, Ezekiel 37, I I maybe said Ezekiel 34, we're in 37, Ezekiel 37, guess what the context of Ezekiel 37 is? God's people are in exile. And we see here from 1 Peter an Old Testament hope that's presented, and then we see the reality of this Old Testament hope in the New Testament. Before we start reading in Ezekiel 37, there's some things we need to realize. Going all the way back to Genesis, we read Adam and Eve sinned. As they were kicked out from the garden, we see that now they too, they're in exile. They're in spiritual exile there at the very beginning of the Scriptures. Spiritual exile is in Adam. The Bible says that, that because of Adam's uh, sin, because now he is separated from God, every single one of us that are born into this world are in sin. You see, sin is not only the acts we commit, sin is who we are. Before we ever commit our first sin, we are born in sin. 
That's why, again, you, always, you, you hear this a lot, but you never have to teach a baby how to do wrong. It's in them. It's simply an overflow of their heart. Those cute little cuddly creatures. No, babies. Boy, they can be, have that temper flare when they don't get their food when they want it. Those cute little babies that turn into toddlers, boy, can they talk back. Those little toddlers that, that, that get into elementary school, boy, can they be self-independent and say, no, none of that has to be taught. We are born in spiritual exile. But then we see that because of this, this spiritual exile that we're in sin, as God brings Israel out of Egypt, we read last week in Exodus 24, they're quick to say everything that you say, God, we will do, and they're sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice, and the, the altar is sprinkled with the blood, uh, symbolizing God's part in this covenant. Man, they get into the promised land, they break God's, God's covenant relationship laws. It's simply an outflow of their empty heart, and what does God do? He, give, he puts them in physical exile from the land. You see, this was but an open evidence of the sin of the heart. But through the prophets, when the people seem hopeless, they're outside of the land of promise, they're around a foreign nation, foreign languages, different ways of doing things, and here they are, commanded to follow God in the midst of this foreignness. The prophet Ezekiel brings them hope. And we see that there will be spiritual and physical restoration one day. Let's just read quickly in Ezekiel 37. Many of you know this passage. It's the valley of dry bones. It says, The hand of the Lord, Ezekiel writes, is upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. What a perfect picture, by the way, of the sinfulness of all of us. Without a work of God in our hearts, we are just like a pile of dry bones. Good for nothing. Those bones, you see bones, and there's no muscle, and there's no blood flowing through those muscles, and there's no skin. Uh, the, no, those bones cannot do anything for themselves. No wonder 1 Peter 1, 1 to 2 is so necessary in our understanding of salvation that it starts with God, not with us. This is what we call human depravity. There's nothing within us that can be life-giving. Even our best works, the best things that we see in humanity are, are tainted with sin. We can't help but sin because we are sinners. But look what happens. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? <laughs> what a question. He gave the right answer. He said, oh Lord, oh, Lord God, you know. In other words, I don't, no clue. 
Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, note this promise, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. This is a miracle of God of rebirth. Verse 6, I will lay sinews upon you. You I will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. This is all God's doing. So as I prophesied, as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. So they're together, but there's no life. And he says to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. Does this remind you when John was talking to Nicodemus and he says the wind blows where it wishes and we can't tell, so it is with the Holy Spirit? Then notice he keeps going. So I prophesied, verse 10, as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. They were hopeless. Yet God would be their hope. Folks, these first century Christians who are scattered, they're under oppression, difficulty, hardship. They may seem to be without hope, but their hope had to be sourced in God, and then they would discover true hope. Same thing is true with us. Where is your hope this morning? Then in verse 12 to 14 of Ezekiel 37, we see the promise of resurrection life. He says, prophesy, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, the land of promise, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves, raise you from your graves, O my people. I will put my spirit within you. You shall live. I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. We see a similar thing is said in Daniel 12 too. We don't have time to turn there. But we see that after God's people suffer, it says that they will be raised to be partakers of God's kingdom. So as we go back to 1 Peter, we find that this Being born again, being given life, being rebirthed is an Old Testament hope that is realized first through the resurrection of Jesus and God and His great undeserved mercy causes us to be born again. 
We are alive spiritually now, and one day we will be, uh, those who are dead and those who are alive will be alive in new bodies, both spiritually and physically. This is the hope of God's people. And Peter is drawing upon this Old Testament truth to say God promised Israel something as they were in in exile because of their rebellion. And God is promising you, and he has done these same things, the already not yet. He's done this, and there's more to come. And you are in exile because of your faith, not because of your disobedience. How much more can you expect the hope, as we'll read uh, in, in two weeks, that the prophets prophesied to you? You see, this hope of new birth, it's sourced in God. He's caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus, but this new birth brings us two things that the text tells us. First of all, the, the new birth brings us a living hope. Notice right there, in between being born again and between through the res- resurrection of Jesus, it says we have been caused to be born again to a living hope. What does that mean to a living hope? Well, I think it's a tie-in there with, with, with the word resurrection, that there's life The fact that we've been born again, we've been given life, just as we have been given life, just as uh, we see Jesus was raised from the dead, from death to life, so the hope that we have is alive. It is to be growing. It is to be an expectant hope. It is not a hope that fades away slowly and just dies out like a campfire. Man, this thing is fueled by an eternal God and that flame, it cannot go out. That's the kind of hope that we have as Christians. But possessing that hope as an eternal reality and living in that hope in your everyday can sometimes be two completely different things, can't they? Why is that? It's because we get our eyes off of God, off of what he has given us through Jesus Christ. We get our eyes on ourselves, on our problems, on the things that we need to do as our our own saviors. We get all of our priorities out of whack we, we, we become neglectful of finding our hope and reminding one another of our hope as we gather together in, in this assembly. And the cares and concerns of this world cause the greatest hope in the world to just be an afterthought. That happens with me all the time. Does it happen with you? I'm a pastor. The work uh, 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 of the ministry, um, you know, not only is that my calling as a Christian, but that is uh, also a specific calling that, that God's given me as a pastor, as an elder. And guess what? Even the, uh, as my life is devoted in, in a bit of a unique way as an elder to the church, I'm still forgetful of these things. And the hope 
experientially starts to fade even though the the truth of the hope, man, that thing's alive and powerful. It's a matter of my recognition of it. I mean, my goodness, if you had a million dollars in the bank, but you never went to the bank and and to withdraw the money and you're living as a poor person, how foolish is that? That's what happens when we become neglectful of the hope that we have that is sourced in God. This is an expectant hope. But not only have we been been reborn if we are followers of Jesus to a living hope, but verse 4 tells us a second thing we've been reborn into. We have been reborn not only to a living hope, but to an inheritance. Did you know that you as a Christian have been given a spiritual inheritance? This would have been very meaningful to the first century Christians of Peter's time. It's not like our culture where, you know, you, 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 you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, so to speak, if you've ever heard that term before, and, you know, you follow the American dream, you, uh, you get a job, you make money, and hopefully you go up the work ladder. No, here, in the first century, inheritance was, was tied to family. It was tied to social structures, and here you have a people who are, who are being ostracized socially because of their faith. No doubt many of them were, 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 were faced the pressures of family, even rejection from, from their, their families like we see many Christians experience even today in other countries. In Muslim families, man, if you are a, a, a child and you make a decision for Christ, or you're living in the home, and you make a decision for Christ, you read uh, personal testimonies of believers in, in these, uh, these other countries, generally the parents have some mercy when they, when they come home and say, I have given my life to Christ. I, I, I have turned from my sin. I've confessed Jesus as Lord. I've looked to his sacrifice for me to take away my sin. They're like, okay, maybe they had a bad, maybe, maybe they ate too much for lunch, they're going to grow out of that decision. You know, their personal testimony at the point of their baptism, that's when it becomes real. And they start getting kicked out, disowned from their homes. Why? Because baptism is the seal. It's the outward, it's the outward indicator that what this decision that you have made, it's real. It's genuine. You're following through on this commitment. I mean, that's the importance of baptism that we miss in our country. These people had little to no inheritance. So for Peter to all of a sudden say, you have been given new birth. Your family may have ostracized you, but you have been placed in a new family. And in this family comes the full inheritance of his children. What an awesome thing. Again, Peter, he 
uses references time and time again that stem from the Old Testament. When he speaks of an inheritance, you recall Genesis chapter 12 where God tells Abraham, leave everything you have to go to a place I will tell you, I will give it to you. In Genesis 15, 13, when God makes a covenant with Abraham, he says there is going to come a time that your offspring will be sojourners. That's, that's the exact same word that we see in 1 Peter 2.11. You are exiles and sojourners. You're going to be sojourners in a land that's not your own for 400 years, a period of time. But I am going to bring you to the land that I'm promising you. In Exodus 15, when the children of Israel leave Egypt, um, the people sing a song of praise to God as they cross the Red Sea, after they cross the Red Sea, and the, the, the Egyptian army is destroyed and the waters of judgment, the Red Sea, as they come back together. They sing a pray, song of praise to God. He says, you will bring them in, speaking of themselves, the people of Israel. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. In other words, you are going to bring us to your dwelling. You are once again going to dwell with us just as you dwelt with Adam and Eve in the garden. Once again, your presence will be restored. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, you may have heard of the Septuagint. The text literally reads, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The same word we see in 1 Peter. Did you know 25 times in the book of Joshua, the word inheritance is used? God is going to give them their inheritance. They go, they, they conquer the lands, and then God says, divide now the inheritance. This is what I'm giving you. The New Testament, it, it presents to us the reality that this inheritance, uh, it doesn't just point to a segment of land in the Middle East. No, it, it points to, as we read the full revelation of Scripture, the entire world. Romans 4.13 says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring is that he would be heir of the world. It did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Colossians chapter 1, you don't need to turn there for time. I just want to read this to you. Look at the spiritual inheritance that God's people enjoy. It says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to ourselves, no, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks, get this, to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. Folks, we've been given an inheritance not because of anything in and of ourselves, but because we have been born again to a new family. And notice the description in verse 4 of this inheritance. It is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's interesting. Uh, Peter likes alliteration too. In the Greek, every single one of these words start with the letter A or alpha. 
And he's doing that to emphasize to these readers the quality of the inheritance that awaits them. Think about that. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Just as their hope will never burn out, their inheritance can never be taken away. In the midst of, in the midst of our preparing to move, you all know this, um, it's amazing the things you can ac- accumulate. And it's amazing those things you were once so excited about and saved up um, so much money for, how you, f- you don't even remember you have some of those things. And, and you're taking trips to the dump to simplify many of these, those things that so preoccupied your mind at the time. And here we are giving so much of our time and our energy and our focus to these things of earth that are the exact opposite of the inheritance that awaits us. Can I ask you this morning, within the past week, how have you been living in light of your inheritance that awaits you? Have you been doing anything that invests in that inheritance? What a miserable life if on our last day, man, we did a lot of good things in this, in this world. And maybe we got a lot of money, maybe we're leaving behind to our children a good inheritance. Maybe we've fed a lot of poor. We've done a lot for society, but what a sad thing if at the end of our life we said, what have I done for that which is eternal? Listen, God has given you in your workplace very temporal things and responsibilities to do. And guess what? God says you do those things to the glory of God. And you do them with all of your might as a, as, a, as a work of testimony to who God is, who you're doing it for. But God doesn't call you to be an electrician or to be a carpenter or, or, or to be a banker or to be all of... That's not your calling if you're a Christian. You are a Christian witness who happens to, on the side, be a banker. A farmer, a a, a carpenter, you fill in the blank. Is that the way you view your life? You may even say, man, I'm retired, but guess what? I'm a Christian on full duty service for the Lord who happens to be retired from my earthly job. We don't retire as Christians. Is that the way we view our life? What did Jesus say in Matthew 6? He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Listen, the richest person in the world 
is oftentimes the Christian that has the least. Because that's just simply less temptation for them to squander their time. Is there anything wrong with having things? No, not at all, when it's in the proper perspective. And we can't just by default say, yeah, I got the proper perspective. No, by default, we should automatically be thinking my perspective needs to be tweaked and changed. Listen, if we as a church A church is composed of its people, right? Its members. If we as a church are going to be a church that is doing anything of eternal value for the Lord, we must be a people as individuals who are each investing in that inheritance that never fades away or else we will be worthless. Yeah, we'll do lots of good temporal things here. I mean, the, the face painting can, can look really nice, but guess what? If, if the parents like me, it gets washed off before bed. Or if, or if we're tired that night, three nights later. <laughs> we are in this for, for eternity. Eternity is at stake, not today. But the only way that we as a church can be geared towards eternity is if we as individuals are geared towards eternity. We've been given an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. And notice this last phrase, it's kept in heaven for you. God is the one preserving it. I mean, Terry, I'm sure First Citizens is a really secure bank with thick vaults, but I prefer, I mean, the security that God is keeping in his eternal storehouse, the inheritance that awaits his people, both spiritual and physical blessing as he brings his people into the eternal promised land, the new heaven, the new earth. But then lastly, as we close and we're going to uh, come to the Lord together in, in, at the Lord's Supper, we've been given an eternal inheritance. It is being kept for us. But Paul, or excuse me, Peter, he doesn't just stop with, with the future. He says, hey, here's how this affects us now. You yourselves as Christians who are struggling exiles, you're scattered throughout these territories, you yourselves are being kept. You are being guarded, even when it feels like you're completely exposed. Look at what he says in verse 5. It says uh, in verse 4, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Who, speaking of you, it's like Peter says, by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God's power is the means by which his people are being kept. Nothing is going to happen to God's people that he does not allow to happen. The difficulties you are experiencing, though horrible they may be, have first gone through the sovereign hands of God. This life is not for our comfort. It is for our refinement. It is for our sanctification. So therefore, God does sovereignly allow difficulty and hardship in our lives. 
Even in our marriages, because marriage is not about us. But we are being kept through it. I like what one individual says. He says, the symmetry is perfect. God keeps the inheritance for us, and he keeps for us the inheritance. And he keeps us for the inheritance. He keeps the treasure for us, and he guards us so that we will properly enjoy it. Now, what's the problem? We seek to enjoy an inheritance too early. We're like the prodigal son. Give it to me now. I want to squander it. God is guarding us. He's preserving us. But notice that it is his power that is guarding us, but what's the vehicle through which we are being guarded? It is through faith. You see, God's power is the means by which we are being kept until the final day of salvation, but our faith is the vehicle in which that preservation occurs. So we are called upon every day of our lives to actively place our faith in what God has done for us. Every day. Every day we are called to place our confidence not in our circumstances, not in ourselves, not in whatever else earthly thing we can imagine, but we are every day placing our faith in the one who is worthy of that faith, God through Christ. You see, the Christian life is one of perseverance, that it is God that is working in us, but we are actively exercising our faith. The very truths that we believed upon salvation, we have not deviated from. We are acting upon those truths by trusting him daily for his sustaining grace. Is that true of your life? Here's the hard part, and we're going to get to this throughout the book. The faith, as uh, one commentator, Karen Job, says, the faith that alienates them from their society is the same faith that provides the resources by which they may endure the alienation. Isn't that ironic? The very faith that has caused this being outcasts in society is the very faith that will give them the endurance to continue in the midst of that ostracism. Folks, is your life characterized by faith? As the end of verse 5 says, one day, that salvation, it is now ready, but it is going to be revealed in the last time or on the last day. We are currently living in the last days, plural, but one day the last day, singular, will come when Jesus comes again and our salvation will be made complete. Our inheritance will be fully ours to share with Christ. How are you living in anticipation of that day? Let's pray.